Well, grab your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 6. Romans 6, we, we won't be able to exegete this passage the way we, we normally do, um, but really use it as, as a launching pad, and we'll come back to it here and there. But um, Normally we go verse by verse, but one of the things I like to do ever so often, maybe every two, three years, uh, is to, particularly whenever we do celebrate baptism, is to remind ourselves why it is we do the things that we do. There is a meme I get almost every single year on Facebook. And that meme is of a little boy, a little baby boy, uh, with a phone up to his ear, sh- shouting, Grandma, you won't believe what happened at church. The preacher drowned someone and everyone seemed happy and clapped, right? In fact, half of y'all, I think, have sent that to me, right? And I, I enjoy seeing it every time, right? But I suspect that from the outside, something like baptism is odd. And so it is good for us to, to remind ourselves why it is we have the ordinances that we have and we do the things that we do. So Romans 6, you will stand with me out of reverence to God's word. We'll read the first 11 verses and go from there. Verse 1, Paul writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized in Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? If we were buried therefore with him by baptism unto death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. If we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our, our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have sinned with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Go, Lord, in prayer. Our Father, thank you for your love and your mercy. Thank you for uh, allowing us to open your word, be challenged by it, open our entire being, that we may uh, counter your word, be transformed by it, apply it to our lives, and celebrate that we are baptized. Not something we should take for granted, but is the evidence of faith brought forth by the Holy Spirit. May I decrease so that you can increase. Name your son, we pray. Amen. It was in the 16th century, a group of believers outside of Zurich were reading their Bible. And as a result, every time the people of God start reading their Bible, things change. And they noticed something odd in the Bible. There were no babies being baptized. And they kept reading that Bible. Sure enough, no babies being baptized. And so they started to ask themselves, self, who is it that's being baptized in the Bible? They read it again and discovered it's not babies, it's believers. And so they did a radical thing. Everyone in that room and and at this special service were all uh, baptized as infants. Shortly after, uh, a few days after being born, they were brought to local Catholic church. Of course, that word meant nothing at the time. Everyone was Catholic at the time. And they had their christening. They were baptized into the church, their parents exercising faith for them. But they couldn't find any of that language in the New Testament. So what they did was one minister baptized the other. Uh, 
And that minister baptized the one that had baptized him. And the two proceeded to baptize everyone by faith in the congregation. That is the genesis of what we call the Anabaptist movements. Now, we don't strictly come from the Anabaptists. We actually come from the English separatists. But certainly theologically, there is a connection going on there. And by the way, if you want to know how the story ends, these Anabaptists were disliked by both Protestants and Catholics of the 16th century. And both Protestants and Catholics would execute the Anabaptists by drowning them. Often they would put them in barrels with holes in them. Husbands and fathers would watch their family die one by one until they themselves were thrown into a sea. With that said, when it comes to baptism, we do have a history. It's a history that we accept even at the cost of some of our spiritual ancestors' lives. And we believe in baptism because it is in the Bible and because of what it actually signifies. They were willing to die for for something like this, and that's not the only thing that they were executed for, but certainly this was a major thing because of what baptism is a picture of. And that picture is what had been lost for over a thousand years in the development of the Roman Catholic Church. Let's begin with a working definition. This is actually going to be our outline of what baptism is. Baptism is a public sign that marks both Uh, Christ's passion and our new birth in Christ, as is the Christian's first act of obedience. Let's start there with that word baptism. That is a bizarre word. In fact, it isn't even English. It is a transliterated word from the Greek, baptizo. The word baptizo means to dip, to immerse, or even to drown, even whenever it isn't applied to the ordinance of baptism. So, for example, if you were to read ancient Greek literature, classic or Koine Greek, you'll find the word baptizo show up here and there. For example, if you're telling a story about a ship, let's call this ship the Titanic, just to come up with a good Greek name. And and it hits, I'm just spitballing here, a iceberg. And you're writing it in Greek. You would say that that ship baptizoed. It sunk. It drowned. It was immersed in water. In fact, Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, uses the word baptizo to describe a drowning. If you look at the Greek translation of the Old Testament, you'll find precisely that. In 2 Kings 5, so Naaman went down and dipped himself seven times. The word there is baptizo. It doesn't mean he was baptized in the way we use it in a, in a, in a, in a, a, a church context. What it means is he went and cannonballed in the river. And, and what he didn't do was, you know, put his toe in to see if it was warm or cold, which he was glorious this morning. Uh, pick up a little bit and sprinkle it on himself, hop back out, come back in and do it six more times. That's not what Naaman did. He dove in and he was immersed. In fact, that word dip, you see, I believe that, that is from the New American Standard. I could be wrong about that. Uh, that word was a common use that Baptists, our tradition, used. At one time, we were called dippers. So if you don't like the name Baptist, it's sort of like shopping at Walmart late at night. You could have always married someone far worse, right? We could have had a lot worse name than Baptist, right? We could have been called Dippers, you know, East Frankfurt Dipper Church, right? I, 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 don't, I don't know about that. I, I, I make a motion we don't allow that to ever to happen here. Um, uh, Mark, we, we see the same thing here. And all the country of Judea was going out to him, all the people of Jerusalem, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River. 
Notice he is being baptized in the Jordan River, not with the Jordan River. It is quite, quite a bit different. Same thing in Mark chapter 1, verse 10. It's immediately coming up out of the water. And that, that describes an immersion where Jesus was fully immersed. John chapter 3, John was baptizing in um, Anon near Salim because there was much water there and people were coming to be baptized. Let me, let me tell you how this works. If, if, if you, you don't need a lot of water to sprinkle someone, a water gun to do that. I'm sure you've seen the uh, memes of uh, during COVID. It was of, uh, of people dressed in Episcopalian Catholic gear, you know, and they had a water gun, had a mask on, and they were doing their baptisms from afar. Hey, you've seen this. Anyone else ever spend time on the internet? It's probably good if you don't, but nevertheless. So the word baptism means to immerse, to, to dip, or even to sink or to drown. But notice also baptism is public. This is one of the things that uh, will get you in trouble if you're, if you're a pastor these days. And you may have noticed it, even what we did this morning, is our two candidates never walk the aisle. Is it possible to get saved and never walk the aisle? Well, it just so happens you can't. Right? You can't. Uh, but one of the things I've, I've noticed is, is in the Bible, the public announcement of faith is at baptism. In, in the New Testament, you don't have aisles to walk down. Because there aren't church buildings. You're too busy trying to, uh, to live, <laughs> frankly, to, to, to have a church building in, 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 in an aisle. And if you had a church building, it would probably be uh, burned down by, by someone. And, and so what you had then were, were baptisms. When I was in Africa, I, I got to witness two baptisms. I've shown you pictures of it before. We, we talked about it before. It was uh, an important moment in, in my life. One of them was a brand new believer. In fact, he had been saved that week, and it's very rare someone in his year Africa that, that they get baptized so quickly, but he was so under the, the spirit, the missionaries and the local pastors and elders and leaders of, of, the, of the little fledgling church in, in the villages there had, had talked to him because and, and they worried about infiltration. They afraid he was an outsider trying, trying to get on the inside to, 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 to corrupt and, and to tear it down and whatnot, but they were convinced that this is a legitimate conversion, and so we, we would baptize him that day. He was a very tall guy, and they had to dig a hole, put a tarp in, had to haul water at three o'clock in the morning to fill it up. It's quite an experience. But with him was, was a woman been been saved for a couple years, been discipled for quite a while. It was an amazing testimony she, she gave. And her testimony, she, the reason she, she decided to be baptized was because there was nothing else for her to, to lose but her life. After all, when, when, when word had gotten around that she was hanging out with those new Christians that had shown up out of nowhere, and was believing what they taught. Her husband abandoned her, took the kids and abandoned her. Father came and took the house. And she was destitute and homeless. And after some time, she came to realize, well, what is holding me back from baptism? Because in that culture, baptism was a public profession, yes, but it was so public that there was no going back. You were making a decision and, and there was no grace for you in the world. You see, baptism was a public profession of faith. But nowhere in the Bible is baptism done in isolation. It is a public event. One of the things I, I do miss about Breckenridge County is how uh, we would do baptisms at, at the uh, Rough River. And I loved it that we would all gather at the river. In fact, we would sing the song as we gather at the river. And, and I'd walk down the little boat ramp, and, and we, we would we'd do baptisms there. The boats would oftentimes wait for us to finish. We'd sing a hymn out there at, at the river. We would read, read Scripture, have a, have a maybe 15-minute service, you know, nothing fancy. But it was public. Here we are in front of everyone, and we were pronouncing, I believe in Jesus. 
You'll notice that every time it shows up in the Bible, it is public. Matthew 3, Jesus was baptized in a public ceremony. Jesus is numbered among others who have been baptized in, again, in the Jordan River with John. Acts chapter 2, notice that the coming of the Spirit was a public event. Like they, they start speaking in various languages and people are confused. What in the world's going on here? And, and what is Peter's message? Repent, and when you repent, go and be baptized. Not baptized in your tub in the privacy of your home, but right here. Here's a body of water. What's to stop us from being baptized here? And let us all rejoice at this. And I don't think we understand why this is. There is something unique that baptism offers. It is an entire congregation of baptized believers coming together and celebrating that God is adding to his kingdom right here. And that we bear responsibility for the faith of, the, of this candidate and this, this new believer. So baptism is a public act. Thirdly, baptism is a public sign. We must begin with what baptism is in its essence. It is a symbol of the gospel. Here we deny anything other than a symbolic view of baptism. It has no saving merits. This contradicts Roman Catholicism, where, where baptism, particularly infant baptism, is a sacrament. We don't use that word because of its abuse. We call it an ordinance because it's a boring word, and we like boring things in Baptist circles. Look at our walls, right? Uh, they white, and don't you dare change that, preacher. We will find another one. But that does contradict Roman Catholicism, where there is or baptism, infant baptism, is an act of salvation, and in uh, uh, LDS Church, this, this is the same thing is going on there. I'm sure uh, maybe you've had this experience where you're doing some genealogical study on an ancestor. I had this experience, and uh, there was a little note at the bottom of the page about my ancestor. It says, was baptized by the LDS on such and such date, you know, 200 years after this person died. And I thought, well, I didn't ask you to do that, nor would I have. But why are they doing that? Because they associate baptism for the dead as an act of salvation. It's an act of grace. This contradicts the disciples of Christ, the restoration movement. We don't have time to get into all the details here, but no other movement has uh, devastated the Baptist movement in America more than what's called the restoration movement. A better term would be the Campbellite movement. Um, I think I've shared this before. If, if you go right down the road here, I'm just going to pick on this church because of connection with my family. Go down the road here, road here, Versailles Road, turn left like you go into Lexington. You come across on the left, South Elkhorn Baptist Church. You're familiar with it, right? Do you realize that sort of across the street is a church called South Elkhorn Christian Church? Here's the big debate between those churches. Who's the real Baptist church there? You think, what are you talking about? One's Baptist, one is Christian. They're not saying, no, 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 it's a split. It started in one of the first churches in Kentucky was South Elkhorn Baptist Church, founded by Lewis Craig, my ancestor. And eventually the Campbellite movement came and the church split. One to the Campbellite movement became a Christian, the other stayed Baptist. And so with the, I've got the history of the Christian church in my office, at home. And they'll say, no, we're the real church. So we go back to the beginning. You Baptists, you're, you're off of us. And the Baptists say, no, we've always been Baptist, so you're off of us. And that, that's the big Right. Now, it sounds silly, but what, what the Campbellite movement had argued, or at least what came out of that, was the belief that salvation uh, was secured only after baptism. Perhaps you've heard this. I had a student of mine. You would know this person, so I don't want to say their name. Went off to college and had a roommate with uh, a Campbellite. Uh, grew up in the Christian church. And he, he calls me. He says, I, I just don't know what to believe. And he showed me these, these verses. And I knew immediately what it is he was being told. You're being told by your roommate who comes out of this tradition, you have to be baptized to be saved. That's not what we hold to at all. After all, uh, uh, if baptism saves, then works save us. 
You're not going to find that anywhere in the Bible. In fact, we saw the contradictory of it today, didn't we? But what does it symbolize? Well, uh, if we were to just look at the early church, and of course they're taking this from the Bible, here, here are six things briefly it symbolizes. First of all, it symbolizes the forgiveness of sins. We see that not only in this passage, we see it throughout Scripture. That we come in this act demonstrating that we have been forgiven. It, it, it illustrates deliverance from death. As, as we'll see, it's, it's the resurrection of life. As Christ was risen, so, so we are raised symbolically and then uh, a future that, that we, we are being delivered from death itself, our true and great enemy. It represents regeneration and new birth, this idea of washing. Remember, Jesus talks about new birth and then the washing of, of, of the Spirit and the work of the Spirit. It represents the gifts of the Spirit according to the early church. After all, it, it is when you have the, the presence of the Spirit, the first act, the act of obedience is, is baptism, and with the Spirit you get his gifts. The renunciation of Satan. This is the language that I really think we should bring back more, and I, I'm certainly guilty of this. Um, but, but, it is, is, it, but we see that with the two examples in Africa. Finally, it, it, it is identification with Jesus. We get this. It, it was right, it, why is a public announcement that I am Christ and he is mine? Fourthly, whatever number we're on, um, I didn't put it up there. Um, yeah, I didn't put it up there, but baptism is a public sign that marks Christ's passion. We see this here in Romans 6, don't we? Notice the language he has here. Now, the issue that Paul's dealing with in Romans 6 is, can you get saved, come to Jesus, and still live in a life of sin? This is an abuse of, of, of liberty. It's abuse of grace. He'll deal with the opposite extreme in chapter 7. But here, chapter 6, he wanted to deal with that. If, if grace abounds where sin abounds, then can I just keep sinning and grace will keep abounding? And Paul's answer is, is no. Why? Because it's contradictory to the gospel. And one of his arguments is, have you not forgotten your baptism? Notice again there, starting in uh, verse 3, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Is he talking about water baptism or spiritual baptism? The answer, I think, there is yes. One is the symbolic of, of, of the other. As Christ has died, so you've died. And as he goes on to argue there in verse 4, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. You see the regeneration there, newness of life. So what, what you have there is a candidate who is, is standing there, uh, uh, the old man. And he is washed, he is buried, he is raised, which is a retelling of our story. Christ died, Christ buried, Christ risen from the dead. So it is a public sign that marks Christ's passion. So what we need to see here is the gospel is, both, is twofold. It is both objective and it is subjective. It is objective in the sense that there is Christ outside of us who dies in our places for our sins. Again, that is what it is you're getting in baptism. He, is, he dies, buried, and raised. It is subjective. It, is, it describes not just something that happened at Calvary, but something that has happened within my own heart. I have died. I have been washed. I have been risen from the dead. Thus, in baptism, we are confessing our firm belief in the person, the work of Christ in, in our lives. This, of course, again, has subjective application. Verse 4 and 6, Paul deals with union with Christ. He'll use phrases like with Christ, through Christ, in Christ. This is our story. And we see this in Colossians 2, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God. Who raised him from the dead? Notice that language is union with Christ. We are buried with him. We are raised in him. That is unity. This aspect of baptism is crucial. 
Salvation is not self-betterment or self-improvement. It is an adoption of a story whose apex is Jesus. And that story becomes our story. This is the difference between spirituality and the Christian faith. We are not merely looking to start over. We are looking to become new people. That can only happen when we believe and understand the story of Jesus that baptism symbolizes. When his story becomes my story, I understand the gospel. Surrender, sacrifice, love, service, humility. These words make no sense without a clear understanding of the cross. Furthermore, baptism is a sign that marks new birth. In the Old Testament, there were numerous ceremonial washings. And that is really the theological genesis of of baptism. The historical genesis of baptism is a different story. But the theological genesis goes all the way back to the Mosaic Law, where they understood that washing makes one clean. And we get that in the New Testament. Notice that in the Bible, baptism symbolizes a number of things. First, it symbolizes repentance. The evidence is clear. Matthew 3, they were being baptized as they confessed their sins. When they saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath of come? Now, can you imagine if we have a baptismal service? And someone said that. Well, can you imagine what business meeting be like next? If, if you make it that far. You brood of vipers. Who warned you of this? Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Notice, repentance isn't a whoopsie-daisy, I'll do better next time, preacher. It's a life that bears fruit. Notice, as for me, John says, I baptize you with water for repentance. You, you can't separate baptism from, from repentance. One of the things I, 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 I keep in mind and that I've, I've learned to, to catch this is if someone comes up to me and says, Preacher, I want to be baptized, that's usually a red flag for me. Because what, what you're hearing there usually, not always, is what ritual do I have to go through that is bare minimum for my soul? And usually I, I will say, well, let's come back to this. Let's talk about what baptism is and all that. And, and if they're young enough, they'll probably forget they even asked the question. It's usually in the context of watching a sibling or a friend or someone else get baptized. They got to go swim in a church. I want to go swim in a church. But we can't, we can't separate baptism from repentance. Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Peter said to them, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus. Notice, repent. This is the foundation of why it is that we, the theological foundation, I should say, why we reject infant baptism. Think about it. You, you have to have a few things in baptism. One, you have to have water. I mean, not, not to just surprise you all with that. You've got to have water. You also have to have faith, right? And can infants demonstrate faith? Now, infant Baptists, um, paedo-baptist traditions have their own answer for that. But let me say just a couple of things about infant baptism. I'm going to spend forever on this. First of all, the Bible clearly teaches believers' baptism. That is called credo-baptism. Acts 2, 41. So then those who had received his word were baptized. Chapter 8, when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized. Notice one comes before the other. Chapter 8, Simon himself believed and then was baptized. Chapter 10, surely no one can refuse the water of these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit, can they? So see, they they believe, thus receive the Holy Spirit and are baptized. Chapter 18, Crispus, leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. Notice, belief, 
baptism, chapter 19, Paul said, John baptized with baptism repentance, telling the people to believe in him who are coming after him, that is in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Notice again and again and again, faith leads to baptism. What you don't have is baptism in the hopes that there will be faith. Secondly, credo-baptism was the prominent view of the early church. Tertullian, uh, the guy that coined the Latin term Trinity, argues preaching comes first, baptism later. When preaching has been preceded, he argued. He goes, others, but we do, I don't want to take the time of all that, but, but this is clearly the tradition of the church. It wasn't until a few hundred years into the history of church this became an issue until the Anabaptists changed all that. Thirdly, how can one symbolize the death and resurrection of Jesus when infants are being sprinkled? After all, Jesus didn't just donate part of his blood. It was his entire being. Infants exercise no faith. Sprinkling doesn't illustrate burial. After all, it is the whole body of Christ that is immersed in the tomb. Not just parts of him. Finally, infant baptism harms our understanding of the church. I think this is a point worth remembering here, why it is so crucial to the health of our church. We as Baptists rightly believe one cannot become a member of this church unless they profess faith. Right? It's called regenerate church memberships. A fancy way of saying only Christians are official members. Doesn't mean anyone can come, and we invite everyone to come. But as members is limited to regenerated by the Holy Spirit, by the blood of Jesus. As members, how do we uh, demonstrate that? Well, the first act of obedience is baptism. Now, so think about what you have there. In infant Baptist churches, you have baptized non-believing members. Can that be a problem? If it's a problem when you have baptized believers who are members of a local church, let's be honest, right? That can be a big enough problem too. But how much more is it in the long run we have non-believing baptized members of a local church? I think that's a problem. Not to mention it's found nowhere in the New Testament. When Paul is concerned that there is a member of the church that does not demonstrate the fruit of the faith, what is his response? You ain't saved. You ain't saved. And he goes back to the very basics that we did this morning. Repent, believe the gospel. What he doesn't say is, like, well, everyone here has been baptized. Let's just work this out. No, no, no. It's, it's, membership is tied in that sense to, to baptism. Therefore, it won't work with infant baptism. Well, baptism points us to repentance. It points us to forgiveness. Again, Acts 2, 38 Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Turn 22. Now, why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins. It's forgiveness. And that makes sense. You can't separate forgiveness from the gospel. Thirdly, union with Christ. We've already talked about that. By the way, let me point it out here in chapter 6, verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his... We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Isn't that good news? That may be a verse you need to memorize. If we have been united with Christ in death, we will be united with him in resurrection. That'll preach not just at a funeral either. 
Because Paul's point isn't, hang in there and be a good little Christian boy because one day you're going to die, you want to see Jesus. His point is, you are alive now in Christ. Death has been defeated. And if you have died with him, you will be raised with him. That's the unity of Christ we speak of. Fourthly, membership into the kingdom, the new kingdom. Matthew 28, 19 and 20, go therefore and make disciples, right? And you baptize them. Name of Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Right? This, is, this is kingdom language. 1 Corinthians 12, for by one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, Democrat, Republicans. It's in the Greek, trust me. And we were all free to drink of one spirit. Notice the unity, a membership into a kingdom that's bigger than our petty differences. Galatians 3, 27, for all of you who are baptized into Christ Jesus have clothed yourself with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free. There's neither male nor female, nor left or rightous, for you are all one in Christ. Again, it's, it's in the original Greek, trust me. But baptism is a public, it's a public act of the local church of unity. What real difference do you have now with the two candidates who were baptized this morning? Nothing of significance. Because you're one with Christ. Remember that next time you want to complain about something. Let's look at the last thing and we, we can be done. Baptism is an act of obedience. You've heard me call it the first act of obedience. I believe that the thief on the cross proves that one must not, doesn't have to be baptized to inherit the promises of redemption. This is something uh, that has always been argued against the Campbellite movement. Yet scripture clearly demonstrates and commands that all believers, unless providentially hindered, to be baptized. A couple months ago, I spoke in, back in Breckwich County. It was good to, to see some, some old buddies. And this question came up. Can you think of any instance where full immersion would not be necessary in baptism? That's a fun little question that preachers talk about that would bore the rest of us. And I remember, I, I said Yes. And one of the other guys thought I had just bought into heresy. And, and, and within five minutes, all of us had come up with scenarios. For example, in Africa, when we did that, we ran out of water. The guy that we, we, we baptized was at least six foot three. And the water was seeping into the sand. He had an elbow still stuck, stuck up. Now, that didn't mean we didn't try to drown the guy. We had, we had two people baptize him. One held his head under until we could get that shoulder in. Right? I, wish, I wish I had the video of it. You have no idea how much I wish I had that shoulder. The poor guy probably did see Jesus at the end of the tunnel. And, and they're just shoved. Well, he's not fully immersed there. You know, I don't think it's time to panic. I've baptized some little kids who were scared to death of water. And to be in the water in public was itself an act of faith. And if, if they have, you know, a nose sticking up, I'm not going to say, well, sorry, traumatized little girl. We're going to do this again. This time, up a little higher, get more gravity, right? We're, we're, we're not going to do that. People on their deathbed who will never lay anywhere. Like, you can think of scenarios, but those are rare scenarios. But what it is that you have in the Bible is the command that all who believe be baptized. Again, Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Baptize them. Acts 10, 48. Peter ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. He ordered them. They didn't vote on it. This was ordered. If you believe, be baptized. 
My absolute favorite experience in getting to baptize someone came several years ago. I try to find the pictures of it. It comes up on my memories every year. It just, Facebook got goofy with me. And I remember this, 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 he's an adult man, and I won't give the whole backstory. He, he was one of those that says, I want to be baptized, preacher sort of thing. So I, I went, went to his home, and walked him through everything. He'd been coming to the church really faithfully for, for a couple months. And I remember I walked through everything. I asked him, you know, do you believe this? He says, oh, yes, preacher, I've believed that for a while now. Ever, ever since we started going back to church, that's what I believe. That's what I believe. So good, good. So we, we set up his, his baptism. He had some handicaps and stuff. And so his, his older brother, uh, as we walked down the boat ramp, it was over at, at, at the lake, and he held one arm and I held the other. And, you know, usually we, we go this way, but because of his limitations, we, we, we encouraged him to go down at his pace when he wanted to. You know, I want to be very gentle and that his brother would hold one arm and I would hold the other to see to it that he, he was okay. And, and, and what I said to him was something like, um, when I tell you to, you, you go down when you're ready. And then I, I turned back to, to, to the crowd, right? We just sang our song. We just read scripture. And I was going to do the whole, uh, this is so-and-so, our new brother in Christ. I baptize you in the name of Father. You know, all that sort of stuff. I, I didn't get there. What he heard was, when you're ready, dunk. <laughs> That's what he heard. And so there's a picture of me holding on to him, ready to address the, the congregation. But then I realize I'm losing him. <laughs> so eager to be under the water. And what I heard, I had my good ear then. I hear, okay, Brother Kyle. And he just sunk like a rock. And he came out. And, and the professional of me thought, we didn't do it right. I'm going to get in trouble. And then it hit me. This is what baptism is supposed to be. Less ceremony, less ritual, and joy. Now, I then said, by the way, that was in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. <laughs> it was. Uh, man, if we had joy like that. Not just when we are baptized, but when we witness baptism. And when we, as Paul encourages here, to think often of what it means to be baptized. In Christ, I have died to the old man. But in Christ, I am washed and I am new. Therefore, he says in verse 12, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies. Let's pray.